are chosen possession, holiness, into the God who called. Seeing here in this text, the beginning of this calling out of darkness into marvelous life for a specific purpose that Israel, God's people, might proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out. Well, as you could tell, we have a lot of ground to cover today. It feels like we're going to walk past a lot of this text. There's plundering in Egypt. There's these promises of Pharaoh's kind of resistance to letting Israel go. There's miracles like staffs turning into serpents and temporary leprosy, which is, I don't know if you know, Leprosy is not a temporary illness. Uh, But we're going to revisit all of these things later in the text. It's kind of like a preview. Each of these we will view in detail later on. Exodus chapter 12, Exodus 17, for example. For now, what I'd like us to do this morning is focus on one of the most important lessons that we can pull from this passage, and it's this. The Holy Spirit is communicating something about the relationship of our doubts and fears and desires and God's commission, that there's a tight relationship between those two things. And when God commissions us to go, if our desires and our fears and our anxieties and our worries and our feeling of inadequacy prevent us from doing that, God is gracious with us in our weaknesses and in our doubts, and he propels us to be where he's calling us, where we belong. Remember, in context here, Moses is in the wilderness, and he's all alone, and God commissions Israel, or God commissions Moses to go back into Egypt, a land that he fled from because he murdered an official, and do the most bold, daring thing ever. Pharaoh, let the Israelites go. And probably all of us would have been in the same position that Moses found himself in. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, after having this commission given to him, Moses asks God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? This is the first of four reasons that Moses is going to give God to try to change God's mind, to try to convince God, you got the wrong guy for the task. Who am I? Remember that. Who am I? Last week, Jack pulled out from this passage that Moses asks who because he's afraid of a failure in his own leadership, a failure in his own past. But God sticks with his commission. He continues to say, go. But Moses sticks with this hesitation. He continues to question. If I can't go on my own authority, Moses says, clearly that's out of the question, who should I say sent me? And in verses 13 through 15, we read one of the most precious texts in all of Scripture, the self-revelation of who God is in his being. Then Moses asked God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to them, and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to me. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all 
generations. I think this response ought to have been enough for Moses. The God who desires his people freed from Pharaoh is the great I am. He is infinite in his being. That's part of what it means, I am that I am. I am infinite in my being, and I am goodness, and I am faithfulness, and I am strength, and so I am an infinity of faithfulness, an infinity of goodness, an infinity of strength. He's also independent in all his ways. He doesn't rely on anyone or anything to accomplish his will. He relies on nothing except himself to accomplish his goals. So if I am says this will be, guess what? That settles it. But instead of being encouraged, we read in the text, Moses seems to be discouraged for some reason, and that leads Moses to give the three other reasons we're going to read in this passage today. The first reason was, Moses questions God's choice. Who am I? Reason number two is going to be, well, Israel won't listen to me. So Moses fears failure. Reason number three is going to be, well, I can't speak very well. So Moses feels inadequate or ill-prepared or unequipped. And then finally, reason number four, I don't want to. But before, God, uh, b- before Moses gives these reasons to God, God's going to reiterate the commission to go into Egypt on his behalf to liberate his people from slavery and to build up the kingdom of God. So let's read the beginning of our passage in today, 16 and 17. He says again, repeating the commission, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice how God addresses Moses' concern. He doesn't say, Moses, man up, dude. You're going. And then kicks him back into Egypt. But neither does he say, like he's some kind of soft 80s or 90s kid, like I was, oh, buddy. Come on, pal, just believe in yourself. Like all the participation trophies you have on your wall. True story, I still have mine from 1991, participation trophy soccer. I kept it because the kid looks like me. In other words, God is not going to respond to Moses by reminding him of Moses' character. Rather, God's going to respond to Moses by reminding Moses of God's character. God reissues the commission, go and gather, and he does so by repeating his name, the Lord God, Yahweh, and his title, the God, the father of, uh, the, the, the God of your fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is this? This is important. Because without first being sure of who God is, we can never be sure of what God does. Without being sure first of who God is, we can never be sure of what God does. We can't be sure that he will actually follow through on his promises. So who is God? We've been told he is Yahweh and the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What this means is two things. One, God is transcended. That's what it means for him to be Yahweh. He's unchangeable, immutable, inconceivable, omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign, awesome, beyond comprehension and holy. And yet he is also the God of whom? 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means he's imminent. He is personal. He desires relationship with changeable and mutable and conceivable and limited and weak and predictable sinners like we are. This means that God can do something about Israel's condition because he is Yahweh and he is high and transcendent and powerful and mighty and sovereign. And he knows Israel's condition because he is their God. He is relational. He's the God of their fathers. What good is it if God can only do one or the other? What good is it if God could redeem because he's powerful, but he could not know their low condition? This is like a king who has the authority to fix an injustice, but is either indifferent or unaware that there are injustices occurring in his kingdom. Or what good would it be that God can know us and empathize and sympathize in our fallen condition, but he's powerless to redeem us or to fix anything or to save us. He would be like a helpless lifeguard who sees us drowning in the ocean but says, oh, I wish I could help. God's none of those things. He's neither of those two. And this is why it's important that God reiterates his title, that he is the transcendent, powerful, omniscient, sovereign Yahweh, and yet he is the close, imminent, personal God of your father's And that God can say, I see you. I know what you've been through. I promise to deliver you. And I promise that that delivery is going to lead to a blessing. And this is the same for anyone in the sound of my voice who has been hurt or violated or assaulted or abused by sin. This Yahweh God of the fathers sees you. He knows what's been done to you. He promises to redeem you. And he promises to bless you. And one of the questions you might be asking if you're struggling with something right now is, well, when? I don't know. But you're not alone in asking that question. It was a question that Israel asked for 400 years in Egypt. It's a question that the psalmists ask 10 times in all of the psalms. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long will you wait to save or to redeem? But you know what's interesting about where the psalmists land typically is that they ask that question, and toward the end of the psalm, they land in patient trust. For example, Psalm 13, 5, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. God sees you. He knows what you've been through. He promises to redeem you. He promises to bless you. That is what God is doing through Moses to Israel. And it's something that he does even to this day. And that kind of a blessing leads to a life of worship. In fact, you could argue it comes through a life of worship. We see that in verses 18 through 19. God continues the commission to Moses. He says, and they, being the elders of Israel, will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So here God makes a promise and a proclamation. The promise is made to Moses. They, being the elders of Israel, will indeed, in fact, listen And they're going to join you when you go to Pharaoh. This may not seem significant to us, but we have to remember, why would Moses be afraid to go to the Israelites, the elders in specific? Because the last time he saw them, he had blood on their hands 
And they were asking, well, who made you ruler over us? They rejected Moses' authority outright. So Moses is afraid. He almost might have said to himself, I've been here already. I tried to lead them out, but they wouldn't follow me. And so God is alleviating his fears. It's going to be different this time, Moses. You're not leading them out on your terms. You're leading them out on my terms, not by your power, but by my power. And so that promise is made to Moses. The proclamation that God makes is to Pharaoh. The proclamation is this. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, as in the Israelites. He hasn't met with Pharaoh. He hasn't met with the Egyptians. He's met with the Israelites. He hasn't met with the powerful and influential people of the day. He's met with the lowly and the weak and the marginalized people. And this God is going to give Pharaoh a choice. You can either let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness by your own volition, or I'm going to force you to do so. There is only two hands that can move in this situation. Pharaoh's hand to let them go, or the mighty hand of God to force Pharaoh's hand to let them go. Now, for the elders to come to Pharaoh and tell him, hey, our God showed up and wants us to leave here and go worship him in the wilderness, that would have been a slap in the face. It would have been very insulting to Pharaoh because, remember, Pharaoh was worshipped as a demigod. He was the bridge between earth and the heavens. He is the highest authority in the world. So for Israel to say, hey, there's a God beyond you that met with us, is insult number one. And number two, we're not going to worship you anymore by serving you. We want to go to the wilderness and worship our God. That's undermining his authority and threatening his power. So this is why God knows Pharaoh's not going to let you go. He's not just going to let you leave out the back door. Which is to say, and we're going to spend a lot of weeks in this, a little God is about to tell the king of kings and lord of lords, no. And we'll see who wins. Spoiler alert. It's Yahweh. Okay, I, I want us to notice something else important too here. Notice that God wants Israel freed for a purpose. What is that purpose? Please let us go. So what? That we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Israel is being freed from service to Pharaoh so that they might be free to sacrifice to Yahweh. Do you see that? Israel is being freed from service to Pharaoh so that they may be free to sacrifice to Yahweh. And that is a deep application point for us today, something the Spirit ought to be telling us right now. When it comes to the liberation of God's people, Israel's not merely being saved from something. They're not being saved from slavery, but they're being saved for something. They're being saved for worship. And in the same way, you, we, are not merely saved from sin, but we are saved for the kingdom of God. We are saved for worship and obedience and holiness and the advancement of the kingdom of God through evangelism and discipleship. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that it's by, we are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. For what reason? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved from sin for good works. We are saved not by our own power. We are made 
right before God. We are justified by faith alone so that we enter into the kingdom of God as ones who are able to worship, to serve, to obey, and in so doing, to be blessed. Next, God tells Moses exactly how he will accomplish this redemption for worship of Israel. He says in verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he being Pharaoh will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So essentially God is saying like, look, Pharaoh's not going to hear you out. And therefore he's not going to do what you ask. You see the difference here? Pharaoh does not listen, and so he does not do. But what did God say earlier in the passage? Tell the people that Yahweh, the Lord of your fathers, comes, and he what? He's heard you. Pharaoh is deaf. God hears. The world is deaf. Jesus hears. And so we see here that Pharaoh is shaping up to be a type of anti-God. Pharaoh can't move his hand to liberate because he can't hear, he won't hear. But because God can hear and wants to hear and listens to the cries of his people, he is moved to set them free, to redeem them by the power of his hand. We're also given, I think, an interesting detail here. Israel will plunder the Egyptians. Brad brought out this point, Pastor I had not seen it before, but it's it's building a theme, I think, in in Exodus. It's, It's the women to whom God is addressing this promise of plundering. And as we've seen in Exodus so far, women have played a really big role in Moses' story, at least. Moses' mom, his sister, Pharaoh's daughter. And so they still have a very important role to play. Well, how are we going to eat? How are we going to fund our wandering in the wilderness on the way to Canaan? Apparently, um, the women will be able to keep the checkbook, which for a lot of people, especially me, like, that's really good news. (laughs) You know... Before I had a wife that was able to keep good track of finances, I treated the ATM like a slot machine. Uh, so maybe that's what's going on here. Who knows? And, and this phrase, plunder the Egyptians, is one of my favorite phrases from the story. Uh, to me, it means take from philosophy or books or culture, whatever, whatever is good, and leave behind what is bad or enslaving. But we're going to save this for later. Exodus 12 is when they plunder the Egyptians. So we will be back to that story. The big point here is that God is foretelling what's going to occur. He's omniscient. He's sovereign. Of course he can. Okay, that's a lot. Let's recap so far. God commissions Moses to go and gather because he sees and knows Israel's hardships. He desires Israel would worship him and be blessed by him. And he will not allow Egypt's stubbornness to thwart his plan. For the next 17 verses, I want us to concentrate on the big picture for today. Most of the details, like I've said, we'll come back to later. But what doesn't happen again is Moses' hesitation toward obedience to God's commission. Everything we're about to see in the details will repeat itself or fulfill itself. The one thing we're never going to see again in this story is Moses not wanting to go into Egypt. So that's what we need to focus on 
in these passages. Essentially, what's going to happen and what we're going to see is Moses fears that he's not the right man because he doesn't think the Israelites are going to listen to him. He can't speak well, and frankly, he doesn't want to go. But in all of those reasons that he gives, God graciously responds with two signs and one promise. He encourages Moses, and he equips Moses with assistance. Chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, but behold, they, being the Israelite elders, will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Okay, again, Moses is afraid because of his past failures, but look, (laughs) Moses' past failures are not God's failures. And what God is doing here is he's promising, despite your past failures, I'm going to work wonders through you. How many of you are like, I feel it. (laughs) Your past failures are not God's failures. And if he calls you to a task, and he promises that that task will come to pass, you can't let past failures get in the way. That's what Moses is doing here. Second, Moses appears more concerned about the Israelites than he does Pharaoh. Did you notice that? God assumes, or rather he promises, that the elders of Israel will fall behind Moses. He says explicitly in verse 18, they, the Israelite elders, will, not might, will listen to your voice. Moses doesn't believe that. God is warning Moses, the elders are not the problem, Pharaoh's not going to go along. But Moses assumes the elders won't go along, so why even bother to Pharaoh? What's happening? Moses doesn't trust God's promises, and therefore he doesn't share God's perspective on the matter. And this leads to mistrust. And it manifests itself in the second reason why he thinks he's not the man for the job. Moses is afraid that he will fail at the task to which God has called him. So if the first one was, who am I? The second reason he doesn't want to go is, what if I fail? What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? I know what they're going to say. You didn't see God, Moses. He didn't send you. And this fear paralyzes Moses. His fear of failing God leads to disobeying God. If you've been where Moses is, God has issued some kind of clear commission or command, or called you to something in your life, but you're arrested and kept in the same space by fear. Well, if I do what God tells me to, what if I won't be accepted? What if they say no? He's called us to move. What if we can't sell the house? What if I can't find a job? What if? What if? What if? I've said it before. It's worth repeating. What if is the refrain in the anthem of anxiety? But Jesus calls us to sing a different song, Seek First the Kingdom of God. Remember when he's preaching in Matthew chapter 6 about the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and how they don't worry because God takes care of things. Likewise, God will take care of us. If he calls us to a task, he will make sure we're taken care of. We just need to seek first the kingdom of God to share his perspective on what he is doing. There are no what ifs to God. There are only, I have ordained it, it will come to pass. Now, 
Won't you join me in doing what you think is impossible? There's the blessing. Overcoming that fear by trusting God to see what you thought could not happen. You see, in response to Moses' fears, the Lord is patient and gracious with him. He gives him two signs and one promise that Moses will not fail. Or better, he gives two signs and one promise that God is going to succeed through Moses. The first sign is, frankly, pretty scary. Let's read it, verses 2 through 5. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He, Moses said, a staff. He, being God, said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses, Moses ran from it. Yes. <laughs> so would I. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he, Moses, put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe the Lord, the God your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to you. He gives him this sign. Okay, that's bizarre, and it escalated very quickly, didn't it? We have a natural aversion to snakes. My family found one recently when we were raking. Well, I should say my family, my toddler found it. <laughs> and the only reason we knew there was a snake is because she was standing by this pile of leaves going, tss, tss. We're like, what is she doing? And we walk over like, oh. And then my wife said like, hey, get away from the snake because they're the devil. It's biblical. Let's get rid of them, right? It was a rat snake, baby rat snake, but we just didn't want our kid getting in the habit of grabbing snakes. But God apparently wants Moses in the habit of grabbing snakes. And I think it's interesting uh, because we're, we're going to see the rich imagery of this in Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to pull in Jesus himself brings up a story about a staff and a snake and how that points to the cross, right? But until then, what we need to do is focus on um, why is God wanting Moses, to get in the habit of grabbing snakes. Not just anywhere, but by the tail. You know anything about snakes, you know the tail's the last place you want to grab a snake. That's why you see on TV, the snake handlers always hold them by the, their, their neck, behind their head, so they can control their jaw. If you grab a snake by its tail, it has all of its muscle and skeleton to bite you. So that is the last place you want to grab a snake. Why did God tell him to do it there? So that Moses would learn to trust God. You are about to do something dangerous, Moses. I'm not going to lie, but I'm going to do the miraculous before you can be bitten. Pharaoh will not be able to bite you when you grab him by the tail. And Moses was afraid. He ran away from the snake at first, because he lacks trust in what God is doing. So, God, though, is, is not content here to give Moses just one sign. So he continues, verse uh, 6 through 9. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he pulled it out, behold, it was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. The water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Again, we're going to see these miraculous signs played out. 
So we're not going to talk about the specifics of them now. What we want to realize, though, here is that Moses was given leprosy only to have it healed moments later. But notice that unlike the last time, Moses didn't take his hand out and freak out. He didn't run away from it as if he could. Like, get away from me, leprous hand. Because if your hand has leprosy, it's time to cut that bad boy off so you don't die, right? Instead, we don't see any kind of emotional reaction from Moses. He simply listens to God and he's healed. Put it back in there, hand is healed. And immediately after, God promises, if they don't believe the staff to serpent sign or the temporary leprosy sign, I'm going to do something else miraculous. And at that point, Moses just has to believe God because God doesn't say, hey, let's go to the Nile real quick, put some water up, pour it out, see, I'll do that, and that'll convince him. No, he just says, you got to trust me on this one. We're nowhere near the Nile. We're in the wilderness. I'm going to take some of that water if they don't believe the first two signs in your voice, and I'm going to turn it into blood, and then they'll believe. Do you see the progression of trust building here in this text? First, God turns a staff into a serpent. Moses is afraid, he fears it, but then he listens to God, he grabs it, and he trusts. Then God turns Moses' hand leprous, only this time he's no longer afraid, he simply listens, he obeys, and he trusts. And finally, God promises Moses a future miracle. And this is not one that God will demonstrate to Moses at the moment. Moses doesn't even question it. He simply trusts that God will do what he promises. From fearing and listening to trusting to merely trusting. Essentially, God is building trust in Moses. These are trust-building episodes, little deposits of trust so that Moses will have confidence in God when he asked him to do big things like stick the staff in the water and we're going to part the sea. God's been gracious with Moses so that Moses' faith and trust in God will grow. God has not given Moses an ultimatum. Did you notice that? He is open to Moses' concerns and fears. He's gentle with his doubts. He's patient with his disagreement. How odd would it have been for God to hear the cries of Israel and not hear the fears of the one to whom he has appointed to free them? And so God is patient and kind with our fears and doubts because God is love. And eventually, Moses' concerns give way to calm. And his fears evaporate, and his doubts are mitigated, and his disagreement softens to the point where it disappears altogether. And in the same way, isn't that what God does with us? He does things to build trust in us. He whispers through his word. He answers prayers. He sends brothers and sisters for rebuke or for encouragement. He does the unexpected and the miraculous even in our life. When you look back at your life, If you trust God more now than you did before, why is that? Is it not because of these trust moments? Because God God did something where, where he melted your concerns away and gave you a peace that surpassed all understanding, that he evaporated your fears through his word, he mitigated your doubts through the good company of community, he softened your disagreements through truth. The God who dealt tenderly and graciously as Moses is is doing the same thing with us. It's the same God that we read in this text, whom we worship today. So Moses' first reason, he asked, why not to go to Egypt? Why, who am I? He gives a second reason, what if I fail? And here in verse 10, Moses gives us his third reason. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. 
either in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. In other words, what he's saying is, you want me to speak, I'm not equipped for that task. You want them to listen, I am not prepared to speak. Now, scholars debate exactly what the problem was. Was it some kind of speech impediment? Uh, was there something wrong with his tongue? Was it a stutter? Was it a slur? Was it a fear of public speaking? Half of you are like, that's probably it. Probably it. I hate public speaking. I do. I hate public speaking. This is terrible. <laughs> but, but in the end, we can't know. Here's something I suspect, though. Uh, and I'm not saying this in commentary, so this is opinion zone. I sense a bit of insincerity in Moses' voice. Well, I'm slow in speech. My tongue is heavy, I think is what the Hebrew says. Listen, it's a robust and high phraseology that Moses employs to essentially say, me no speak well, right? Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. Either in the past since you have spoken to your servant. Like, that's like Shakespeare saying, but who am I to write you a play? You're Shakespeare, buddy. I think you can do it. So my opinion is this. Moses is not inadequate for the task. He just feels that way. And don't we feel that way too sometimes? Well, God knows we can do something, but we don't feel like we can. We believe that we're not capable for completing a task that God calls us to, but is it because we're truly incapable or is it because we fear that we're not? In the whole Bible, think about this, when does God call anyone to anything knowing full well that they will not accomplish the task that he has for them at hand? Never. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. We've heard this countless times, but here it is, nearly in black and white. God does not call the equipped. He equips those he calls. He equips them through his Holy Spirit. He equips them through his inerrant and infallible word. He equips them through the sanctified community of the church to which they belong. This is especially true, I think, in our day and age with evangelism and discipleship. I mean, think about Moses' three reasons so far are, are the three reasons that we give why it's difficult to evangelize, to share, to proclaim the gospel, to disciple someone. Well, who am I? Well, what if I fail? Well, I'm just not equipped enough to do that. Look, if we're being honest, we believe these things out of a fear of failure and not out of a fear of God. Because if we feared God more than we feared failure, we would trust and obey his commission to go. There's this really famous uh, passage that's related to apologetics, the defense of the faith, 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, that essentially says uh, that we're to honor the Lord our God, um, or we're, we're to honor Christ as Lord over our hearts, to always answer anyone for the hope that is within us. And then there's a famous saying, yet do this with gentleness and respect. And for a long time, I believe that the gentleness and respect was talking about those who are asking about our faith. Like, why are you different? Why do you believe what you believe? Well, you always answer anyone with gentleness and respect. But I'm coming to think that really what Peter is trying to say there is we share the gospel with gentleness to the unbeliever and we share the gospel out of respect of God who put us into that position to begin with. The word respect is phobos. It means fear. You're not to fear the people, right? Who are we to fear above all? 
God. And so God puts us into these positions, and we ought to steward them well, regardless of if we feel equipped or not, because God would not put you into a position that you could not fulfill the task by his power to do. So who do we fear more? Do we fear Pharaoh more? The Israel elders more? Or do we fear God more? Do we fear the world more? Do we fear the king of kings more? Do we trust ourselves more? Or do we trust God more? These are the questions that Moses is dealing with right now, and it's ones I think we wrestle with every day. It's strange that we feel this way too, isn't it? When you think about it, I mean, separate yourself from yourself for a moment. If God can raise his word, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the grave, don't you think he can put his words on your mouth to share the gospel? It's basically what Moses is about to hear from God. The Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or sing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. I'll be with you. I'm, there. I'm already there. Just come. I'll be with your mouth. I'll teach you what you shall speak. Again, God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And God promises the one he has called, Moses, he will equip him. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you. And yet, Moses gives one more reason why God must be mistaken. He must have the wrong guy. And this is the true reason, I believe, that provides the foundation for all the other reasons that he's given. Exodus 4.13, but he, Moses, said, Oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. The Hebrew is a bit less forthcoming, actually. This is really interesting to me. Basically, it says, and there's a, there's a newer Hebrew translation that kind of like pulls the nuance out of what, he, of what Moses is saying. It translates like this. Please, Lord, by the hand of him you want to send. In essence, what he's saying is, God, this sounds really great. Man, it'd be awesome to see the Hebrews liberated, and I wish the best of luck to whoever it is you sent. <laughs> That's essentially what Moses is saying here, right? His response is ambiguous. He does not say, he, he doesn't dare to come out and say, you're wrong, God. Although that's what he believes in his heart, isn't it? Why? Because we're finally to the real reason why Moses is hesitating to go. He doesn't want to. That's the real reason. Onion layer after onion layer after onion layer, finally we're at its core. Moses doesn't want to go. His desires do not match the desires of God. Moses' heart does not mirror the passion of God's heart. And yet, God is still patient with Moses, albeit the heat is turned up a bit. Then the anger of the Lord kindled against Moses, and he said, and that's what the anger of the Lord kindled against Moses comes across in Hebrew. It's a flaring of the nostrils. <sighs> Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Sternness, we should hear here. I know him. I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. Here comes the soft gentleness, the graciousness, and I will be with your mouth, remember. It's just reminder after reminder after reminder. And with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and, you shall, and he shall be your mouth. And you shall be as God is in a representation, an authority to him. Take your staff, 
with which you shall do your signs. No more discussion. Go. So once more, Moses has offered a reason not to go. And once more, God has graciously given Moses a better reason to go. This time, however, the anger of the Lord was kindled. And this is a very rare thing so far in the Torah, as in Genesis up to Exodus here. There's only one time before that we see, up until this point in the Bible, where God was angry. And God was angry with Sodom. Genesis 18.30. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. Genesis 18.20 says that Sodom was, their sin was very grave. Isaiah explains that they do not hide their sins. Or they're arrogant or proud about their sin. Jeremiah 23.14 says the, Sodom, that the people of Sodom walked in lies. And in Ezekiel 16.49, and I think this has some connection to what we're seeing here in Moses' heart, they had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. There is perhaps a correlation between the experiences and the desires in the hearts of Sodom and Moses. Like Sodom, Moses may have become complacent. He may have become comfortable. He may have been good at shepherding and didn't want to leave that gig. He didn't want to go where it was going to be difficult, where he was going to be marginalized. He didn't want to go where things are not going to be easy anymore. And when God asked him to aid the poor and the needy Israelites in Egypt, Moses says, I don't want to. Are you ready for some stinging conviction? Sometimes we don't want to obey God's commissions because we're too comfortable in our life and too numb to the needs of others. We are indifferent to their spiritual death, and so we do not proclaim the gospel in word and deed because we're comfortable being liked in the world. And we are apathetic to their livelihood, and so we do not engage in acts of mercy because we're comfortable in our routine and we enjoy our prosperity. And because we worship comfort over creator, we don't want what God wants. We want what we want. So when God asks us to change our wants and our desires to want what he wants, he wants your neighbor to be saved, to desire what he desires, he wants your neighbor to be forgiven, to be clothed, to be fed. We, like Moses, beg God, oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. But what's God's response? No. No. Because my cause is greater than your comfort. And when you obey, you'll see that your comfort will become my cause. Eventually, Moses will take comfort in God's will. He will be blessed in shepherding God's people. He will enjoy worshiping God in the wilderness, but not until his desires align with God and he takes a step of obedient faith. I want us to recognize something very subtle in this text, and I think it speaks to every human heart. The order of Moses' reasoning not to go. Moses says, I am nobody. I'm afraid of failure. I am not equipped. I am unwilling. God says, you're concerned about the wrong thing. You're talking about the wrong I am. All of these are built on the bedrock of Moses' desires. In fact, it makes a pyramid. See what I did there, Exodus, Egypt, pyramid? 
In other words, I, I believe the right order chronologically as it was recorded is happening, but it's actually the reverse logical order. In reverse order, Moses' reasons build on each other like a pyramid. Moses says, I do not want to obey God. I do not want to answer his commission. I do not want to aid the spiritually and physically poor and needy. And because Moses did not want to, Moses felt ill-equipped. What do you get ready for or prepare for or put energy, time, talent, and resources into something you don't want to do? You remember cleaning your room when you were five? Cleaning your room? But when you want to do something, what happens? All of your energy, all of your focus goes. So no wonder he felt unprepared because he doesn't want to do it. Moses doesn't want to do it, and so he feels ill-equipped. And because Moses felt ill-equipped, he felt like what? He'd fail. Because when you do not feel equipped or talented or prepared enough to do something, you feel like you're going to fail even before you give it a shot. And you know what? Nine times out of ten, you're right. Because you didn't prepare. Why? Because you didn't want to. And because Moses felt like he would fail, the Israelites would not listen to them. And Moses questioned God's choice in the first place. Who am I? Who am I? Aren't there better people? Aren't there more eloquent people? And deep down in his heart, isn't there somebody else who actually wants to do this? Here it is. I think this is one of the most convicting things the Holy Spirit has taught me in text, in this text so far in Exodus, just to be transparent. Reflecting on this pyramid, which has bothered me for three days, like in a good way. How often have I said, well, God, that sounds great. What a wonderful opportunity, but you know, there are far wiser and more well-known and better men and women out there for the task. I'd feel like an imposter anyway, so who am I? And in so doing, I decline an opportunity to serve God. Often if I said, sure, God, I'm interested, but what if I fail? What if people won't listen to me? What you're asking is not just improbable, it's impossible. Too many moving parts, too many ducks I'd have to have in a row. Too great a risk to myself, my family, my, my, my reputation, whatever. So I resist God's call. God, you know, I'd love to, but I am just not equipped. I can't do that task. I'm not gifted in that area. I don't have the right experiences for that. That mission calls for a different set of natural skills that I lack, and for that reason, I delay moving to God's orders. But all of those reasons are simply excuses to mask how things really are in my heart. I don't want to answer your call, God, because I'm comfortable where I am. Anybody here in this room with me? Or am I the only one? Church, I think we need to become a place of discomfort. A place where this place is uncomfortable. Some of you are like, well, if you're in these little brown chairs, we already are. <laughs> but that's not what I'm talking about. A place of discomfort with our comfort. A place of constantly turning around and asking, am I actually ill-equipped or do I just feel equipped, unequipped? Am I fearing failure because I feel like I'm the wrong person for the task that God has called me to? Or is it because I really don't want to do what he told me to do? 
And in that moment of recognition, of confession, you know what, God, at the end of the day, I'm at the bottom of the pyramid, I'm at the center of the onion, I just don't want to. Change my heart. Give me compassion and passion for that people group. Give me passion and compassion for that need. Give me courage and strength for those moments of sharing the gospel, of discipling, of calling a brother or sister out, of rebuking. Because I want to, like Jesus told me, seek first the kingdom of God. To seek first the kingdom of God is to recognize that our own kingdoms, as comfortable as they are, are temporary. And that our comfort can become the calling that God has issued on our life only when our hearts align and beat to the desires and the rhythm of his. Let's become an uncomfortable church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this story of your servant Moses and the conviction of seeing our own selves in him. I'm reminded and so grateful that the Bible is not a story of good guys and bad guys, but of one good guy and the rest of them. That good guy, that good person is the son of God, your son. And so to see in Moses not a hero to emulate, but a man with whom we empathize in our fallenness and limitations and weakness gives us such great comfort to know you called him. Surely you mean it when you call us. And so, Father, we cut to the chase and we repent for the times when we have let our desires for comfort and complacency, for fear of man or fear of the world, to prevent us from enjoying the blessing of responding to your commission to go. Father, give us opportunities, shape us by your Son's image and empower us through the Holy Spirit to go into the Egypts of this world and through your power alone liberate souls and bodies from your enemy that you may receive all glory and the blessing that you call us all to tucked up and hidden in the treasure of your son's heart in whose name we pray, amen.